I'm at the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. This is the 32nd annual CCSAD hosted by C4 Events. This is where I get my hands on the experts and the professionals in the field of addiction and mental health disorders. So you can have more help, more support, more connection to the information that is going to bring your family back from the brink of destruction, from these destructive habits, these destructive patterns. I'm Aaron Huey. Welcome to Beyond Risk and Back. Robin, how old is your daughter? My daughter's 21. And you don't know where she is right now? I actually know that she's staying at a friend's house right now. Yeah, sometimes I don't know where she is, but as of today, I know she's at a friend's house. How did you find out? She came by. She came by the house. Um, she doesn't do that often, but she did. And she said that she wasn't ready to stop. She doesn't want recovery. And she's not willing to, to do anything this time. Usually when she comes by or when I find her, she you know, is in bad shape and says, get me help, I need help, like I'm gonna die, or get me Suboxone, or whatever it is, and I get her into treatment and whatnot, but this time she said, I'm just gonna, I'm 21, I'm gonna do my thing. How many times has she been in treatment? So this has only been going on since last November, and she's been in treatment four times. Wait, her addiction has only been going on? Like she's been mm -hmm. a practicing addict for since less than a year? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. is that bad that quick? Yeah, yeah, no, she's a good, sweet girl. She's mostly deaf. Uh, she doesn't hear that well. And she has some other like heart conditions and whatnot. So she's always been like the attached at my hip child, like a sweet, just in it, like very sweet, kind little girl. And she met a boy, not that it's his fault. I mean, she made a choice, but she met a boy and he was using heroin. And I mean, just like that. So she did one of those zero to 60 yeah. bits. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know she was using. I knew he was uh, in November. And I kind of started making some boundaries, stopped paying her rent, whatnot, because they were, you know, um, by Christmas Day, I got a phone call, said your daughter's in a crack house in Atlantic City, and she OD'd twice tonight, and you better come find her. And I didn't know she was using at all. And then it was that bad. By the time I found her, she was, like, on the streets of Atlantic City, homeless, um, beaten up, just in bad shape. You put her in the car and drove her to New Hampshire to treatment. Do you sleep? <laughs> Not often, actually. <laughs> well, I can't Not imagine. often, actually. And what's, a, what's amazing and the reason why I wanted to kind of hammer the show like that at the beginning is that you and I are here as professionals at this conference. Like you work in the industry and, and we understand this from the analytical, the logical, the prefrontal cortex concept. Um, you and I also understand this as being addicts in recovery, um, recovered addicts, however you identify as that. Um, and, and knowing what it's like, because you, you told me off the air, you were found beat up in an alley mm -hmm. at the age of 23, I thought you said? Mm -hmm. 23, 24. Mm -hmm. Okay, so, so we've got this golden thread of disease running through your family. Um, and it's, it, there's a lot that parents want to say, what is it that I did? What did, how, did I, how could I have done things differently? But as someone who's practiced recovery, sincerely, um, as someone who has probably educated her daughter uh, most of your, your daughter's life about the, the, the dangers of this, uh, you, you work in treatment as a professional. You, you were telling me yesterday you're getting ready to open a facility, mm -hmm. uh, your facility, and you found out yesterday where your daughter is. Um, 
this is the nature of the disease. Right. It's that nobody's immune to. It's not nobody's immune to this disease, which uh, honestly, it was shocking to me. Like I thought maybe she was. I thought that nobody's immune to it, but maybe maybe my kids were. Right. Because they were raised in this. So I'm sober 23 years. I uh, not only do I uh, am I heavily involved in, in, in a 12-step program and in this treatment, but they came along with me. I was a single mom. They went to meetings with me. I took her to my home group from the hospital before I took her home to her crib. Like she met my home group first. She was raised in it. And oddly enough, when she was about 12, <clears throat> she wrote an essay. She came home. She said, I'm afraid to show you because you're going to do one of those things that you do where you cry, you put on the mantle, <laughs> you know. She said, but I won a big award and I have to go to the Capitol and get this award for this essay I wrote. And I wanted to show it to you. So, and it is on the mantle, by the way. And <laughs> about three paragraphs and it's titled, one can only know great joy through great suffering. And she's so sweet. She said, about three paragraphs in, it says, <clears throat> I know this may be controversial to some. However, I was raised by a group of people who experienced great suffering in their lives and almost died. And through that, they are the kindest, most spiritual, the nicest, and, and most joyful people in the world, but only because they suffered so greatly. But key there... I was raised by a group of people. Yeah. She didn't see, I was raised by a single mom in recovery. I was raised by a recovering alcoholic. She said I was raised by a group of people. I get chills because she saw AA raised her. That's how she saw. And this industry, this treatment industry, we're all a family. And that's how she saw who raised her. And she saw sponsees die. She saw my boyfriend die. She saw her friends die. I thought she knew. Like, I just thought that her knowing would be enough to, to keep her. She was exposed to it her whole life. And she came home and, and is using heroin, you know. She wasn't immune to it. The disease does not pick and choose. She says she's not using heroin right now. Right. She says she's, she's drinking and smoking pot and uh, taking whatever she can find and that she's been off heroin for about two weeks. She AMA'd from a treatment center about two weeks ago. Um, she used for about two nights in, in Philly, and then she says she's not now. Do you believe her? I don't know that I do. Yeah. When she's using heroin, she's usually missing. So I do know she's doing better than that. I mean, this is where we're at now. Like right. This is what we're doing now. You're doing better than not homeless on the streets, missing, and I can't find you. But you're not doing so good that you're home and, and have a job and, you know, are part of the family. The biggest mistake we make in the industry, the, those of us who work in the mental health care industry, in the addiction care industry, is and we fall prey to this despite the fact that we understand it. We try to employ logic to sanity. Mm -hmm. There is nothing logical about what your daughter is going through. The fact that you said um, she's doing better than homeless, nobody in their right mind says, how, do, how does that even fall in the category of better? <laughs> like, right, right, right. So, so this is insane. Mm -hmm. the, 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 the daughter that I had was, was, my, was my promise, my second chance, the proof that, that the God and goddess were real, and I stole from her so that I could buy weed and then hear someone try to argue with me that weed's not addictive, right? And, and, and it's, and regardless of what weed is or isn't, the insanity that I would take the person who I love the most 
and betray them the most. That, that, that I, had a, I had a wonderful upbringing. My dad was amazing. My mom was incredibly progressive. And I ended up as an addict. Mm -hmm. This is insane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had an amazing upbringing too. I had a wonderful family. As I always say, my family, the, the, the only fault they have is that they love me to a fault. They didn't know what I suffered from. And I didn't know what I suffered from. Like, I didn't go home and say like, ma, here's the deal. So I think I have this like God-shaped hole <laughs> and I'm missing something and it's a void and I'm just trying to shove stuff in this hole inside of me so that I can fit in and feel okay. I didn't know about that. I just knew I was uncomfortable from an early age and I would shove anything in there to try to feel better, whether it was food, sex, drugs, alcohol, it didn't matter. I'm just trying to fill a void. But I don't know about that. And my, my family didn't know about that. They don't know about a disease of addiction and that it's a spiritual malady and all this stuff. So they just tried everything. One time they bought me a horse. I came home and they're like, we know you've been using drugs. So we bought you this pony. <laughs> like, maybe that will help. Like, <laughs> you know? like, God bless them. They just threw everything they could at it. And then I had this misconception that if I educated my daughters, you know, they're twins. I'm like, if I educate my daughters, that that was what was missing. Nobody knew what I suffered from. So I'll teach them about what you're suffering from. And it just goes to show that, like, knowledge is not the key to this. It's not about knowing it. It's something you have to feel and experience and have an experience around it. it, it knowing it is not going to save us. So I, let's let's talk about the disease piece, yeah. all right? Because we're we're in a it, it comes and goes as being the 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 corner of it, and certainly anybody who's been in the rooms, um, but what I mean by rooms for the people listening is the the NA the AA rooms, mm -hmm. is that that's how it's referred to, that's how it's considered, that's how it's explained, um, but now we're also in a world where. That we're we're starting to realize, recognize, and remember as we watch these speakers and professionals going, you know what? It's actually trauma. There's something underneath this, and and the addiction piece is secondary to something that has happened. And then people say, well, my kid wasn't traumatized. And we're like, your child was uh, uh, has not been alive, has only been alive in a country that has been at war. That's traumatizing. Like. So, so let's, let's talk about the disease piece. How do we quantify this, qualifies this as a disease? And is that still theoretical or are you saying, and, and theoretical for lack of it being proven to be a disease or are we going the whole DSM and saying this is an actual disease and here's why? Yeah. I mean, the DSM claims it as a disease. It's the American Medical Association has claimed it as a disease. It's a chronic brain disorder. And, and it's a serious mental health crisis that more people have died from than anything else, like in this country. So um, I, is, is trauma a big part of it? Absolutely. I mean, I look at the girls, like they're twins. Did Madison have some more trauma that triggered her to start to try to fill that with something? And that's where, she, where her twin sister has never used or drank or anything. So, um, but she's also had less... Um, you know, you might want to call it trauma with Madison's like hearing and her difficulties. She's experienced like bullying and things that might have led her to to doing what she does, where Lexi might also be an addict. Uh, we don't know. She just never went there. Right. You know, so I think that trauma is a part of it. I think there's, you know, trauma can maybe trigger the need to start to do it. Uh, either way, it's still it's not a choice. Either way, it's a chronic brain disorder we're suffering from. They, it's been declared a disease. It's why the insurance now covers it. Right. And at the end of the day, the truth is like, my daughter would not stick a needle in her arm if she could stop. She wouldn't. Who chooses Who this? Who chooses to do that? People, 
they'll say, well, they keep choosing to do this. If you, I'm, <laughs> I did an intervention on a girl the other day, and she was in bad shape, and, and her mom saying, honey, won't you go to treatment with this lady? And she looked at me, and she said, you think that I want to do this? Don't you know that if I could stop putting a needle in my arm, I would? They don't, nobody's, they're not choosing to do this. Right. They cannot stop. You know, my daughter doesn't want to, she doesn't want to live this way. She has a nice home. She has a little cabin on a lake, a nice family. And she's living in an abandoned house in Atlantic City, doing God knows what on street corners, hustling for money and panhandling to get enough money for another bag. That's not how she wants to live. No. She can't stop. And she has to get far enough away from it to stop, which is why, you know, I choose to to get her into a treatment center that can remove her from the substance, get a detox out of her body sure. long enough for her to have it physically detox so that she can have an emotional and spiritual experience. No, and, and I mean, that that's a quick one because that, that's, you know, when people question a medication assisted uh, uh, treatment, what you just said is literally the reason is so that we have a gap that does not exist otherwise between the using and the pain, not the, the discomfort. We're not talking about discomfort. Look, detoxing from marijuana is uncomfortable. You're angry, you're depressed. All the shit that you felt, which went away when you got high, comes back after about 30 days. Set your watch to it. And it's uncomfortable. And, and 45 days of that discomfort, you start to, especially if you're exercising, you get some good sweating in, stuff like that, eating well, starts to go away. That's not what we're talking about with alcohol, with heroin, with cocaine. It's not, a, it's not uncomfortable. Mm -mm. It's life-threatening. You feel like you're dying. So I wasn't a heroin addict, but, I, but I've experienced this with my daughter. So she was in a treatment center up in New Hampshire, and they called me one day and said she was missing. Not even AMA, like she signed some paperwork and said she wanted to leave treatment. Like she bailed. She was missing in the, in, the, in the middle of the night, just gone. And they could not find her. And from New Hampshire on a mountain in the middle of nowhere. Oi. She hid in the trash dumpster till the police. She hitchhiked to New York. She panhandled for money. She then hitchhiked to Atlantic City. And then she bought heroin and fentanyl for days. And we were looking for her. And she was missing for about five or six days. And the sixth day, we found her. She, I said, I think that's, that's, that's uh, I was with her sister. I said, I think that's your sister. And, and my daughter said, that can't be. That's a homeless girl. And I said, no, that, that's your sister. And she was in these coats, and it was cold, and she was homeless. And when we found her, she looked at us, and she ran over, and she started crying. She fell to the ground. She was hugging her sister, and they were just crying and holding each other. When they were done, she looked up at me, and she said, Mom, I know you don't believe in it, but please get me a box, and I'm going to die. And I get chills when I say it because I'm a good old-fashioned big book AA girl that believes in a spiritual solution and that God will save and, and there's only one way. And when my daughter, with, with, with black and blue eyes in the freezing cold with needle marks everywhere, who had been on the streets using for days, when she looked at me and said, please, Mom, I'm really going to die. I cannot do it if you don't get me Suboxone. I said, okay. How do you and how would you? I mean, this is, this is what's so that I'm so grateful in talking to you, Robin, about this is that not only are you, you know, do you do inter interventions and you support and counsel and, and coach families through this stuff, but the, the fact that you live this on a daily basis currently right now, um, how do you get to the point? I'm not sure if the word how is the right, but when, how do you get to the point where you feel like you've done everything and if it ends tomorrow? 
you you can go well i i tried everything so so at least i can i can chalk this up to the disease taking yet another beautiful person or is that just never going to happen because this is your daughter right right it's it's, it's interesting cuz i when i cancel families i used to tell them what they should do and not do and the boundaries they should have and not have and now when I cancel families, I tell them I don't know. Every family is different. Every boundary is different. I don't know. I can't tell you. I used to tell you what you should do, but I didn't kick my own daughter out on the street. So I'm not going to tell you that tough love is the thing. I, I know that one. So I know that there's one thing that I know for sure, and that love is like always the answer. Yeah. And love is what will fix us. Love is what people need. Like love is what's going to break through and open you up and want you to get your own help. And so I don't know that I am doing the right thing currently. I'm holding boundaries and telling her she can't use in my house and until she's ready to stop, she can't come home. I'm holding that boundary right now. But when she does come home and she has, I make her a good meal and I cuddle on the couch with her and I watch a movie and I rub her hair and I tell her how much I love her and I tell her stories about when she was a little girl. And she came home a couple nights where I left for this conference and and her sister was like, you're really going to let her in here after everything? And I said, I am, because she has to feel the love. We don't not love her. And there has to be nothing more hollow and empty and scary to feel like your own family doesn't love you anymore because you can't stop using. So I want her to feel love. And I believe that that, uh, that will bring her back. And I believe that that will stay with her and it will break through at some point. I really do. And I don't know if I'm not supposed to make her meal. I know I'm not supposed to give her money, so I don't. But I, but I give her love and I tell her how beautiful she is and I talk to her about when she was such a sweet little girl and, and I tell her when you come home again, we'll go on vacation and, and I just make sure she feels loved. I, she has a phone right now, it was stolen, but she can get on the Wi-Fi and I send her messages like all day. I love you so much. Like I want her to feel love and I think that that's, what she needs. That's all I know she needs. The rest of it might be wrong or right, but I know that my job as a mom has always just been to love her. You know, it, sitting across a, 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 a coffee table from a family who's going through this and counseling them on enabling, or counseling them on tough love versus, you know, and, and certainly, you know, you're talking also an, an extremely old school, um, when we say love is the answer, like, for me, on, on the day that I got sober, it was because I experienced unconditional love three times in 24 hours. Uh, one from a divine source, one from a stranger who answered the phone at the Triangle Club, and one from my dad when I told him I was an addict. It, my dad's not my father. My dad's my dad. I never met my father, died from alcoholism, right? So, but it was that, that experience of love that maybe we would go, oh, like this is about love. Uh, the, 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 and so, to, so again, I want to say to you, Robin, that sitting across the, the coffee table from a family where you say, well, you can't do that. You can't finance this. You can't let them into your house. You got to cut bait and stuff like that. You are, you are approaching this from such a, such a real and raw and authentic place to say, we got to discover what's going to work for you mm -hmm. and for your family because you need to get to sleep tonight. You need to make sure that, God forbid, it, you get the call, which which you live with. Right, right, right. And I used to, like I said, I used to tell families, like, you need to, because my, see, my, it, we, we live from our experiences. Yes. You know, we come from a place of this is what works for me, and we try to teach that to others. And, and, and the world's changed, the drugs have changed, uh, you know, it changes, and we adapt and adjust to it. So my family cut me off, didn't take my phone calls. I one time, 
like hitchhiked to Idaho to my parents' ranch. And I'm walking up this long driveway and I'm like, when I get there, I'm just going to tell my mom I'm done. I'll go to that place. I'll do whatever you say. I meant it with all I have. And she's going to answer the door and just, mom, she just let me take a shower, give me some clean, clean clothes. I'll go off to the rehab place. And when I got up to the door, she was in the glass windows and she was doing dishes and she saw me walking up this long driveway. Um, you know, in Idaho, and 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 it'd take me days to get out there. And and I saw her see me. I saw her turn off the water, and she walked towards the door. And I walked up to the door, and she locked it. And I just heard the door lock. And I thought she was going to open it with and nothing. I sat outside in the hammock for a while, walked, made my way back to town, found a payphone, called my sister, and she said, "No, Ma said nobody's allowed to talk to you anymore. Ma said we're not even safe when you're around in town." And and so that's what they did to me. I had nobody to call. I call. This is dating myself, but <laughs> I called 411 when I needed help. Wow. Do you remember the 411? Of course I do. That's how you got information <laughs> yeah, on things, I had, of course. Yeah. For, for, for those that don't remember, is before the cell phones, before the Google, <laughs> and we called 411 and asked them for phone numbers. Yeah. And I called 411 and I, and, and I said, um, you know, I'm having convulsions. I usually go into seizures after this. I'm dying. I need help. And she's like, we just give phone numbers here. And I said, oh, God, I don't, I don't have anybody's phone number to ask for. Nobody would talk to me, take a call from me. I just really need help because I know I'm going to die. And she connected me with a detox nearby, wow. uh, right in directly into that nurse's station. And you talk about, like, your, your, your day one and unconditional love. Somebody answered that phone and stayed on with me and, and had me tell them landmarks of where I was and, and wrapped me in a, in a, in a towel and a, and a blanket and put me in the backseat of their car and they didn't know me. And she said to me when we were in the car, I got off work eight hours ago. I was just, we got your phone call and we were trying to find you. I couldn't go home until we found you. And they took me into that treatment center. And, uh, you know, by the grace of God, I haven't had a drink since. But, but that was because somebody expressed that unconditional love to me. But my family had cut me off. I couldn't call them. And so to me, that's what worked. I was going to ask, was it, is that, is that like, like what a symbolic thing? The door's locked now. Like, like this is everything we've done that has facilitated you being this and everything you've done that's facilitated us being this. Mm -hmm. I mean, doors lock, uh, just go around, lock the doors. I bet you can hear that sound right now. <laughs> like just click, click. And, and so, but when I had absolutely nothing and no one to call, I, I called and got my own help. And so I believed that that's what saved me and it, and it did, but that doesn't mean that's what's going to save my daughter. And so yeah. when I look at her, I have to uh, look at it and say, if I locked the doors and didn't take her phone calls, how abandoned would she feel? I felt abandoned in that moment. I can look back and say, you know, I deserve that. And I'm glad I was given an opportunity to, to find it on my own. But for her, I, I just believe that she needs to know that she's not judged. Right. And that I'm her. She's me. I was there. I get it. She's extremely loved and we'll get through this this love with boundaries yeah with boundaries of right. course but that's what healthy love is right? right bound boundaries are us asking for a healthy relationship with someone right. that's what a boundary is people was like well it's a, it's a consequence it's an invitation to be in a healthy relationship with you mm -hmm. if if i'm going to set a boundary um and 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 love and boundaries the after my first experience of unconditional love from a divine source, I walked home and I called the Triangle Club. Somebody picked up on the first ring. Where a week prior I had called and it was busy. And I took that as a sign of, from God 
that I I was overreacting and I could keep getting high. Like that's that's insane. That's insane. <laughs> right. that's insane. So so someone answers on the first says Triangle Club, and I said uh, I need to know when there's a meeting. I think I'm an addict. And this guy says, "Where are you? I'll come get you." And and I was just like, and I said, "Don't do that." And he says, "It's okay, man." And I said, "Don't fucking say it." And he says, "I love you. It's gonna be okay. Where are you? I'll come get you." And I said, and I just I said, "I'm not ready for this." And he and he goes, "We have a meeting every hour. If you need a ride, someone will come get you." Mm-hmm. Click. And I broke because here's a stranger who's willing to walk out of his meeting to come get me. And it was my sponsor who I could call at three in the morning and he would meet me at Perkins and I could do my step four list and, and sob and cry and have everybody in Perkins stay way away from us. (laughs) And he grabbed my hands across the table and say, I killed my grandmother so that I could get meth. You're gonna be okay. Like, that, that, that willingness to be open, you know, we talked about how addicts have no boundaries and we'll share anything. And here we are knowing each other for 20 minutes and we know our deep and darks already. But also the enough love to lock the door. Do you have a relationship with your family now? Or is, is it, does it, did it work? Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. It, it, <laughs> it took a little while. It was funny because, you know, I go back and I'm like, oh, I'm sober 90 days, you know, let's go on vacation. And (laughs) (laughs) I remember my mom, she used to walk around with her purse like under her arm, you know. Oh, no, we trust you, Robbie. I'm just going to hold my purse real tight. (laughs) (laughs) It was like uh, locks on the medicine cabinet and, you know, but um, uh, yeah, I went and made amends to my mom when I was, um, you know, going through this work and. And the same thing with me when I first got sober, like people just loved me that didn't even know me. Strangers. I slept on their couches for two years, like a year and a half or so. I slept on their couches. I left treatment. I had nowhere to go. I didn't have clothes. They gave me clothes when I left there. And then I just slept on people's couches and they fed me and said, we love you. And, and, and they're strangers yeah. and they became my family. And that's the group of people that, me, that my daughter talked about when she said I was raised by a group of people, those people I left treatment with that gave me couches and, and, and places to sleep and, 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 and my family was still uh, weary for a long time. And I remember, I mean, I was seven years sober one time. My sister-in-law said, I wanted to invite you to, you know, your nephew's birthday party. Um, but your brother said something about the police will come and there'll be fights. And I was like, listen, I'm like seven years sober. I can be trusted to come to the nephew's birthday party. And she's like, okay, we're going to give it a try. So it was a very long, <laughs> it was a very long process. Um, I went and make amends to my mom and I, you know, I, I knocked on our door and I said, you know, mom, listen, I just wanted to tell you that, that it was wrong and I harmed you and, and I want to make that right. And she said, you've been lying to me since you were old enough to talk it out. Wow. And, and I said, please, mom, I'm trying really hard to do this, this program and I have to make amends. And she said, you've been, you've been lying as long as you can talk, just get out. And I said, okay. And as I was leaving, she said, um, tell you what, we'll see what you got though. And <sighs> what that meant to me was, you know, the, the old saying that says, I can't hear what you say because your actions speak so loudly to me. What, what that meant was, we'll just see what you have, okay? Yeah. I'll watch. I don't care about your words. Show me how you're going to change. Yeah. Show me how you're going to live this. And I was able to make amends to the rest of my family. And not only did we heal, but they healed together as a family. I saw them come together. 
I went and made amends to my sister, and I said, you know, it's wrong. I stole from you. I said, I, I broke it in the house one time when I was a teenager, and you were seven or eight years old, and Ma had locked up all the money, and so I broke your piggy bank, and I stole it. And I wanted to pay you back that money, and it's about $60, I think. And she said, you think that it's about $60? She said that you robbed me in my whole childhood. She said, my whole life. Mom was like, I can't right now. Robbie's in jail. I can't right now. Robbie's in trouble. Robin's in the hospital. Robin got beat up again. She's missing again. I can't right now. I have to. And she said, I come home and Ma, I got into the college. So that's great, honey. But we have to save Robbie. She might die. We're scared. And so she said, you robbed me of that. How are you going to make that right? Wow. How are you going to make that right? Dad? I don't want your $60. Not about that. And, and so I thought, you know, do whatever I can. And she said, be a good sister now. Show up. Be there for my, let my kids have Aunt Robin. And, and so I do those things. And, and what happened was we all started to become a family again. Just, just the fact that your sister had the, the ability to speak to you in that way without fear of your reaction, of, of, of out taking, uh, without taking responsibility for, well, if I say this to her, she might go out and drink and then she'd die and then it'd be my fault. Like yeah. she was in the place to finally say, no, you don't just get to say, I'm sorry and give me 60 bucks mm -hmm. because there's more going on this. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. That means she did a lot of work right. on herself. Right. They all did a lot of work, which yeah. I saw later that they were doing work. So my mom came around and we became best friends. My my mom loved, she wasn't uh, one of us, so to speak, right? She was just kind of spiritually fit naturally. Yeah. She was kind of born that way. She was happy and okay, no matter what. And, uh, but she loved, um, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and whatnot and, and, uh, she just had a good time with it and she would go do things and 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 we became very close and and she passed away a few years ago but with her and I laying together in her living room while she was on hospice listening to music talking for days and she would go back through she'd say no I, I know you can't have resentment so let's just start back at like four did you have any resentments at four how about five <laughs> you know so I don't want to leave you with any resentments you got to talk about everything but she was my best friend and we were, uh, had a relationship that I could never imagine before I got sober or after so is that you know it worked she set some boundaries she cut me off she slowly allowed me back in based on my actions and my behaviors and what she could see from afar slowly let me back in you know and and that's what worked how do you is 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 your recovery and your family's recovery the changes that your family made as you began to to speak a new language about life and god and the, and your family were able to to have their changes and and everybody's it just sounds like everybody in your family just started taking ownership for it's like no this is what's mine and you don't get to say that and you don't get to take that anymore and that's this is all so healthy is this why you hang on to hope for your daughter or do you have a mother thing underneath it you know is your hope logical in standing in the midst of insanity i think that the um the, the bottom line is, yeah, it has a lot to do with that, right? And, like, I, after my mom passed, I was going through her stuff, and I found books after the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I found an NA book. I found um, books on just on the disease of addiction in general and all these notes. She'd written all these notes through it. She would write things in circle and say, this is why Robbie. It was like a, a place in there that says, um, in, in the in the big book, sh she had circled a place, and I was going through this after she died. She circled this place where it said, um, 
they don't know why they do it any more than you know why they do it. And if they're wow. honest with themselves for even a moment, they will tell themselves the truth. And that is that there is no reason why they do it. They just do it. And she circled it and she wrote, this is why Robbie can't choose to stop. She doesn't know why she does it. She just can't not do it. And so I found out that she'd been learning that whole time, researching. And so, yes, yeah, she cut me off. So to me, it felt like abandonment. The reality is it was an opportunity for her to heal and, and learn. So that she could love you the yeah. way she had promised mm -hmm. to. And so that she could survive. Yeah. And so she survived the way she could. She researched it. She read about it. She prayed about it. She found out about it. She went to groups about it. And she did her own work around it so that she could be available and strong when I did come around. And... So like what I found out was like that work that she did is what kept her through. And what I found out with my daughter in the situation we're in now, um, I'll tell you what, the thing I found out, the biggest thing I've learned is the only way to get through this for me yeah. is vulnerability, is being exposed, just telling people I'm actually hurting. I just saw an old friend at the conference. She said, oh my God, how are the girls? Lexi's doing amazing. I see her on Facebook. How's Maggie? I don't see her on Facebook. I said, yes, yeah, she's... Um, a made from treatment recently and is using. And that's a hard thing to say because she's telling me her kids are in college, <laughs> you know? And, uh, <laughs> right. and I'm like, yeah, so Maggie's a heroin addict now and that's what we're doing with Mags. And, and like to just be vulnerable though and know that that mom had also been through this. And if I would have said to her, we're good, everything's good. Yeah, I know you don't see on Facebook, she's not on it anymore, but we're good. And walked away, I wouldn't have learned the support that she gave me in that conversation when I told her the truth. And so in this experience, I have found out for me, the best way for me to survive this is to tell people the truth, is to be vulnerable and expose myself and say, I am suffering, I'm hurting, I'm an expert in this, and I don't know what to do right now. If there's no secret and there's nothing to hide, like the illness, it's, it, it feels like if, if we can expose cancer to sunlight, it'll dry up and go away, right? And, and whether that's true or not, it's, it's certainly a lot better than it festering in a dark, moist corner. Right. And that's the, that's why we say you kill the secret, you kill the addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and a family is only as sick as its secrets. Mm -hmm. Like these are the terms we put out. Mm -hmm. And uh, you're certainly you're certainly not one for secrets. And I know that that the family's listening to this, that the moms and dads listening to this are listening to you going, oh my God, like like this, this is not just, my family is not terminally unique. My child right. is not terminally unique. Like here's a here's a recovered addict, a, a, a professional world, opening our own facility, living this on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And not knowing what to do sometimes. That's a, that's like that's crazy to me. Like I am an intervention, <laughs> I'm a certified national interventionist. I'm in long-term recovery. I Everything you just said, I, I, I work in this field. I help a lot of people. And I walked into a family group the other day and I've spoken there as an expert in, a, in addiction treatment over yeah. and over again. I walked in and, and the ladies were all like, oh my God, Robbie, you're speaking tonight. And I said, no, actually I'm here because my daughter's using, I'm scared to death she's gonna die and I need help so bad and I don't know if I'm doing it right or not. And, but if I hadn't said that, I wouldn't get the support and help around that. Right. I need that. And so, and, and I have to be vulnerable about that and just say, you know what? I actually don't know if I'm doing it right. And I know you don't know if I'm doing it right. My friend, uh, owns Granite Recovery, um, where where my daughter was at one point. I texted another night and I said, she just left treatment again tonight and I'm scared she's out there again. And he called me and he said, I don't know what you should do, but I know I love you so much. And I'm just calling to tell you that. 
And I said, thank you. I don't know what I should do either, but I, I appreciate that. And that's the kind of like support that we need as parents, I think, to get through this. Do you remember uh, the book Beyond the Yellow Brick Road? It, it came out in the industry a while back. I do, but I don't know if I read it. Okay, well, well, the, I've heard the, about it. Yeah, it, because it, it was a pretty controversial book. It was the guy who started the adolescent facility that had Carol Burnett's daughter in it. I, I'm sorry, I can't remember his name right now, but Beyond the Yellow Brick Road, it comes and goes as being the book we all love and then the book we all hate, <laughs> those of us in the industry and in recovery. But his story as a heroin addict went that every Friday he would go out and have lunch with this Catholic priest. And the Catholic priest called him one day and said, I just want to let you know that I won't be able to make our lunch meeting on Friday. Um, and I'm sorry and I love you. And he was right away like, love me? Like, what is this, gay? Like, ooh, a Catholic and he loves me? Like, what is, I didn't think, I thought we were just having lunch. It's not a meeting. Like, what's going on? But he could not shake, I love you. He couldn't shake it. And then it, how, how much time it took for him to say, I love you back. And, it, and that his whole book was like, you can, all the science, all the pills, everything is going to be secondary to, I love you. I, I love you. I love you. Not for, not for what you do, but for who you are. Because if it, if this is I if this is love for for what you're doing, then it's conditional. And I can tell you, as being a kid who never met his father, it love felt like a conditional thing. But when in that moment, in that magic moment on rock bottom, where three men loved me unconditionally, mm -hmm. I got it. I got that this whole thing, this whole disease, and maybe it didn't cause the disease, but it certainly was the trigger for me living the symptoms on a daily basis was not feeling love, not loving myself. And NA and AA were rooms where I could go and be loved until I could take that on myself and actually love myself. And learn how to love other people. Yeah. They loved us until we learned how to give that love to other people. Healthy love. Healthy love. Not the 13th no. step love. <laughs> <laughs> there was some of that too. But yeah, yes, no. <laughs> but, but those 12 steps of yeah. boundaries and, and yeah. people calling you on your right. BS. And, right. and that's what changes our heart and breaks us open and and like for me my daughter actually said to me the other day when she was home she said to me she said um what if i never become one of those recovering addicts like you know that are good people they're sweet and good people i've done a lot of bad things now and 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 i'm jaded and i'm cold to the world now like what if i'm never that girl that that you think i am and she said, it's strange being in the house because I've changed and you're the same. And she said, I sit in this cabin and I look at you and you're the, like, you're the same. And I've had a 10, 11 months out on the streets and I'm a different person, Ma. And I looked at her and I said, you are not a different person. Inside your heart, you are a sweetheart. You were the girl that was collecting money for the homeless, making them scarves, going out in San Francisco and making me bring the homeless guy an umbrella across from the bus stop that you used to see. Like you were the one that used to save your food after dinner and can we drop it off on the, on the way home because you saw a homeless person and that's why you didn't eat your food. Like that's the little girl that you were that's still in there. Like you haven't changed. Like you just have to find that little girl again, but it's in there. Like you're not a bad person. You've done some things that have blocked you from others and that's okay. But deep down inside, you're as lovable in that moment when you're nine as you are right now. And I think that that's like, that's I know what I want her to see. Does that make sense? Like that's what I want her to see. Yeah. 
Robin, talk about talk about the project you're going on, how people can get in touch with you, ways that they can reach out to you, connect with you directly. Have you written your book yet? <laughs> I've actually started writing a book a couple times and never finished it. Um, <laughs> but you could I talk have some about good it. stories, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I have um, a new project going on. It's called Peace Valley Recovery. It's in uh, Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Uh, we have outpatient, intensive outpatient, partial care, uh, extended care program, male and female. So we're excited about that. That's launching in October. Um, first week of, week of October, we're going to be open, have a big open house on November 8th. So uh, that's peacevalleyrecovery.com uh, for the website. And I'm on Facebook at Robbie Love, R-O-B-I, and then Love. Love is my middle name. So really? Robbie Love on Facebook. Yep. Robbie Love yep. on Facebook. <laughs> Robin, um, you know, hold on to hope, hold on to hope because that's, you know, as addicts, we don't abandon hope when we're going through hell. It's what gets us through. If I can say anything to you, it's please remember that, that no prophet hasn't gone through hell first. No saint wasn't a sinner first. Like this is, these are, and we all, we end up here. So if, if there's anything I can do to support you in this process, you, so that you can sleep better at night, um, don't hesitate to reach out to me because I love you. I love how honest and real you have been. I love what I know this show is going to do for families. I, this is this was a real deal, and I hope you can see all the notes I took <laughs> in our conversation. Not one, but I hope you can see how many pages of notes I take when other people are talking. Like I don't stop writing uh-huh. when I'm listening, but you're riveting. And, and the story is so real and it's so honest that this is one of those things that transcends the logic that that is what these conferences are about. Let's make sense of this insanity. And you're you're an honest reminder that that's not it. It's love. We, we the secondary is making sense of it. Right. But the first thing is you love. So thank you. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you. I, and you were, Thanks you're, for having me. It's my pleasure. Anytime, any, anytime you want to talk on this program, you you don't hesitate to reach out to me. I will. That's All right. awesome. Thank you so you're, much. Of course, you're welcome. Thanks for being on Beyond Risk and Back. This has been another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, coming to you from the 32nd Annual CCSAD. That's the Cape Cod Symposium on Addictive Disorders. Thank you to C4 Events for having me here. I also want to thank Dylan at Deepin Productions. Dylan does my sound engineering. He also does the music for Beyond Risk and Back. So if you need to get in touch with Dylan, go to deepinproductions at gmail.com. That's D-E-E-P-E-N productions at gmail.com. If you've seen anything about Beyond Risk and Back on social media, you can thank Your Cause Consulting. To get in touch with Your Cause Consulting to handle your marketing needs, go to info at yourcauseconsulting.com and send them an email. Thanks so much for listening, parents. Remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work with our children. This has been Aaron Huey, and I will talk to you soon.